If you've been with us uh, either through the fall or with us last week, you know that um, this time of year we're focusing on, on something that's called the For the City Initiative, where we're really uh, attempting to talk about or talking about some objectives that we have for the coming year in terms of uh, issues of justice and mercy in our community and around the world. And uh, I was actually on a run yesterday with a friend of mine, and he was asking me a few questions about what we're doing and some of the different projects and the nature of them. And just this morning again, I was reminded that so much of what we're doing around this Advent season with our giving, with the, the, the For the City initiative, is rooted in shaping the next generation, whether that's the next generation here in our city or whether that's the next generation around the world globally. And we know that if we're going to change the world for the next 10 or 20 or 15 years, we have to invest in, in these guys now. And so in the month of December, what we've done for years as a church and what we're doing again this year is just simply asking that you pray and consider what you might give above and beyond your normal giving, specifically to that For the City initiative so that we can accomplish some of these goals. And um, the things that we're tackling, we're tackling clean water, we're tackling uh, education in the developing world, we're tackling poverty in our own community here, and some specific things we'll talk about in the weeks to come. And then we're talking about planting gospel-centered churches in the Portland metro area. And those are the things that we really have some audacious goals for. So if you want more information on that, there is a little website that has some details. It's on the clear box that they're out in the commons. We've been asking you to gather change or dollar bills or uh, do some things to bring this home and to be reminded of it. But there's a little QR code that you can scan, and that'll take you to a website that tells you about our goals for the coming year. And uh, I will say, like every day I think about this, they're audacious goals. It's a lot for one church to tackle, but I believe we're the kind of church that can do that. So I encourage you to keep praying about that, what you might give. And uh, in addition to that, this is so fun. I love this season around B4. It really is beautiful. Um, last Sunday, I stepped out in the commons. And, uh, you know, there was jazz music playing in the commons, and there was, like, s there was snow falling but not sticking, which is my favorite. I don't want to drive in it, but I want to see it. And I was like, I felt like we lived in a snow globe last Sunday. I was like, what a way to kick off the Christmas season. And uh, every week during this season, we've got fun things that are going on. I think there's a hot cocoa bar out in the commons today, so your kids can get all sugared up if you brought kids with you today. Or sugar up somebody else's kids if you don't have your own. That's always fun to do, too. Like, send them home. That's madness. Um, next week, there is, uh, there's pancakes between the services, and so you'll want to come early. That's going to be a lot of fun, and I, I've heard they're going to be like extra good pancakes next week. And then um, this Wednesday, we have our shelter worship night, which is going to be a Christmas edition. And uh, I'm being told that uh, you need to wear your favorite Christmas sweater if you have one. And uh, there's going to be a kid's like craft corner. There's going to be dinner provided, all sorts of great things. So that's 5.30 this Wednesday. It's going to be a really fun time together. So I encourage you to check that out. But now we're going to dive into a, a second message in a series that we kicked off last week. Last week we began this series called Illuminate. And we're looking at light and this concept of light, which is really inseparable with this season. When you think about the Christmas season, this contrast of darkness and light or this idea of light being a part of what we celebrate is, is really inseparable. And last week we started this conversation and we saw that the story of humanity and the story of humans connecting with God begins in darkness and chaos. And then God, with a word, brings order and light. And then we see in the Genesis account that man throws himself back into chaos, and even though it was day, even though there was night and day, there was still a sense of humanity walking in the dark. Like life is still filled with chaos, and there's relational and vocational and financial and emotional and physical 
brokenness. There's darkness that we live in as people. But then we came to the New Testament book of John last week, and and we saw that while we were waiting in the dark, this idea of kind of sitting with anticipation, knowing that this cannot be the way it's always supposed to be, we saw that while we were waiting, Jesus entered the darkness. John literally says that he comes as the light of the world. And then a little later in the story of Jesus in the gospel accounts, um, the story takes off, and then Jesus himself refers to himself as the light of the world. We're going to look at that today. The story kind of really begins in John chapter 7. Uh, in John chapter 7, there's a particular moment where the Jews, the Jewish nation, they as a people are celebrating a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But they're all going to Jerusalem for this holy week, if you will, this celebratory time together. And, and during this time, while this festival is going on, there's a lot of speculation about who Jesus is. People are, they're watching him, they're listening to him, they're asking questions. Everyone's sort of either whispering, like, who is this teacher? Or they're accusing him of things, of being some sort of dissident. They're, they're wondering, like, what is the true identity of this man? And some people think, well, he's a really good man, he's a good teacher, we should listen to him. Other people think he's the opposite. They think he's actually destroying Israel, that he's actually destroying all these things that people hold so, tr- so true in their hearts. Um, the question of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, that question gets raised. People are starting to wonder, is he the one? Another group of people, they think that maybe Jesus is like one of the Old Testament prophets, like Moses, who has come to lead them out of their bondage to the Roman Empire. So all of these questions are swirling, and Jesus is sort of moving through the city, and he's teaching different people. And then you come to John chapter 8, and there's this story that some of you might be familiar with. You might have heard this one if you've been around the church a little bit, but Jesus is teaching in the temple court. He's sitting down. Jesus taught oftentimes from a seated position, and people have gathered around, and they're listening to him teach. And there's, in the middle of this moment, there's this woman that gets brought before him by the religious leaders. The religious leaders of the day captured this woman uh, and because she had been committing adultery. And so she's referred to as the woman caught in adultery. That's her reputation. And so they bring, him before, bring her before Jesus, and they challenge him, like, Jesus, what do you say we should do with this? And they, they're, they're demanding that Jesus give an answer because their law demanded that she be stoned, that she be executed because of her crime. That's what their religion demanded. And so at this point, Jesus has a reputation. Jesus has a reputation as a person of love. He has a reputation as a person of grace, as a person of peace, as one who forgives. And so the Pharisees are asking, basically, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Except they don't want to learn from Jesus. They want to trap Jesus. So they ask him what he should do. And Jesus bends over a little further, and he begins writing in the dirt with his finger. We actually don't know what Jesus wrote. We just know he was like, you know, doing things like farmers do when they get down in a hunker, you know, in the dirt. They, he's just, you know, doing some things, and they're kind of watching, and while he's doing this, they just keep asking him questions. They keep, they're kind of badgering him while he's not looking at them. You can kind of picture that scene. And then finally, Jesus answers them, and when he does, he gives us one of his most well-known statements. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. How many have heard this before? Right? Well, the Pharisees, one by one, they dropped their charges and they one by one began to just drift away from this conversation until it's just Jesus standing there with this woman. 
We can assume that, that maybe part of that original crowd that he was teaching was still there. Um, at, at the least, we know that Jesus' disciples were, were still there. They're still with him. We know that John was because he's writing about it. So we know that there are some people there, and they're watching, right? And they're probably still wondering, like, Jesus, what are you really going to do with this situation? Like, there's laws about this. And you've just confronted it and embarrassed all the religious leaders. Like, what are you going to do? And while they're watching, while they must be thinking, like, what is going on with this guy and who is he? Jesus looks this woman in the eye and he says, where are your accusers? Like, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one. (laughs) And then Jesus looks at her and says, well, neither do I. I don't condemn you either. And the story kind of comes to a close as she walks. She walks away. Now, did I mention this is completely unprecedented? This is absolutely unprecedented that she would walk away. So this right here, this is so important that whatever it is that Jesus is doing is so radically different from the prevailing thought or the prevailing way that people function in the day that he's confronting all of it. His his philosophy of life, if you will, is so radically different that he's disrupting the culture around him. Whatever it is, it is like the difference between night and day. It's the difference between dark and light. Jesus is showing us light. It's really interesting because if you keep reading in John right after this incident, the next time that Jesus addresses the crowds during this festival, uh, it, it might have been it might have been minutes after this, it, it might have been hours, but the next time they see him, after this moment with this woman, and this is our anchor point for our sermon today, he says this, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. There's darkness, right? There's darkness. There's chaos. There's brokenness. And you're bound to walk in it. And you're going to have questions about how to live life and how to, how to treat people and how to think about yourself. You're going to walk in this darkness. But he says, listen, whoever follows me, whoever follows me, you won't walk in this darkness. You won't live in the dark. A little bit later than this, same festival going on, same week in the life of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking past this man who was born blind. And this creates all sorts of conundrums because the disciples can see this is dark. Why would somebody be born blind? Like that is so mean and, and, and hard to understand. And so it, these questions come up for, for the disciples and they're like, why? Like, did, did somebody do something? Was it his parents? You know, how do you explain this? Is there something back in his past? Like, why would this be the case? Someone has to be blamed for the darkness and for the brokenness. But Jesus, instead of diving into some theological reason or ramification, simply says, I'm the light of the world. He says it again, I illuminate the world. I bring light to dark places, and he brings sight to that man's eyes. That episode leads to John chapter 9, verse 39, still the same week, the same time period, where Jesus metaphorically explains, I have come into the world that those who are blind could see, that those who cannot see because of the darkness could have their eyes opened so that we aren't stuck in the darkness. And I appreciate this about Jesus, is that he's not denying the existence of darkness in our world. 
He's not just shoving it away and saying there's nothing dark. He simply says, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to live by a, in a life that is dominated by darkness. What's really interesting, if you fast forward a few decades, the message of Jesus is spreading, uh, it's growing, largely because of one man. His name is Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Paul the Apostle, he travels to Athens, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 17. So in Acts 17, he's in Athens, and Athens is this place where philosophy reigned supreme. It was the home of all the great philosophers, and it was a place during that day where people came from all over the place to debate ideas and cultural thinking and, and philosophical, philosophical uh, ideas and, and patterns of thought. This was the city where people were thinking about life and, and why we're here. And everyone everywhere knew that's what Athens was all about. It's the place where questions got wrestled with, big questions about life and uh, existence, all of these things. And so Paul goes to Athens for a few days, and he's hanging around the city. He's walking around the streets, and he's making observations, and he, he goes into the synagogue that's there, and he goes into the marketplace that's there. And he's talking to people about Jesus, and so people are listening to him because he's another one of these philosophers in their mind, who's come to share his ideas. But then some of the ruling philosophers in Athens, they, they hear about this, and so they gather him together. They bring him to the Areopagus, this place that was like the center of, of cultural thought, and they say, we want you to explain yourself. And so Paul goes to this spot in the, the center of all of this worldly education, and he preaches this really iconic, beautiful sermon in Acts chapter 17. But in it, he describes the human condition. And I want to give you just a few verses of this, because listen to what he says. In verse 26, he's, he's in the middle of speaking to all of these, these thought leaders of the day. And he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The, the vocabulary that Paul uses is like people fumbling in the darkness that image is really powerful when you immerse yourself in it and you think about the implications of what he's saying. I mean, you've walked around in darkness, right? You've done this before. You've tried to navigate your home in the darkness, right? Like, you know what it's like to navigate a room or a space when the lights have been turned off. That's a difficult thing, right? You might know that there's a table there. You might know that there's a wall there, but now you're just sort of sensing it. I know it's here someplace. I, I have an idea that it's there, but I actually don't know the specifics. I don't know how close or how far I actually am. You might even bump up against it. You might even, when you bump against something, go, oh, that's right, that's the couch, that's what that is, okay. And you navigate around it, but you're immersed in darkness. That's what Paul is saying about this life that we're living. We're fumbling our way through darkness. Your eyes might be open, but you're not really seeing. There are things around you, there are realities that exist that cannot be seen by you because even though the lights are on, you are in the dark. What seems like light is actually the middle of night. Now, all of this that Paul is saying makes the words of Jesus that much more powerful when you think about it. Because I, I don't know about you, I'm kind of tired of fumbling around in the darkness. We've had enough darkness. And Jesus says, listen, I can keep you from fumbling through your life. Now him saying that he is light, it's such this 
a beautiful metaphor that he's giving us. Um, there, there's a psalm that Jesus would have grown up memorizing as a child, a psalm that, that Jewish children grew up memorizing and internalizing because it's about this longing for light. Um, in fact, it's one of the first verses that I memorized as a kid when I, when I first was asked to memorize scripture. I went to this one. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is such a rich and vital statement. A lamp to my feet means this. You light the steps that I take, the choices that I'm making with my life, the way that I use my life. You're illuminating those decisions. You are the one that shows me what decisions to make. This idea of a light being to, um, a light to my path, it means you illuminate the direction that I should go. So you, you illuminate the steps, the choices. You illuminate the pathway. That's the picture that's being painted. Um, maybe you've heard somebody say, we should shed a little light on the subject. Anyone ever heard that statement before? Let's shed a little light on it. What does that mean? Well, the idea is this. If we can shine light on something, then we see it for what it really is. We can see what's true if we put light on it. Which means we're talking about how light leads to truth rather than error. It speaks to knowledge rather than ignorance. And the idea here is really simple. I'm done wandering in the dark. I've had enough of these kinds of moments. I've made enough of those kinds of decisions. I've done my best to navigate this life. And so what he's saying is I'm coming to a point of stopping and saying, I'm tired of bumping into the walls and tripping over the furniture. Maybe we could shed a little light on the subject of my life. That's what this means. I need some light. The challenge is this. When we begin to have this sense that I need to shed some light on my life, there are a lot of candidates vying for the status of light of the world. Um, in the 17th and 18th century, the world experienced something that we call the Enlightenment. Anybody heard of that? <laughs> Do you know what the Enlightenment was all about? I mean, on a basic level, it was like, hey, let's allow people to become enlightened, like let's shed some light on their lives. That was kind of the idea, but the underlying idea was that it was about re-embracing the wisdom of the ancient Greeks. That was the root idea. So many of the Enlightenment philosophers, they were set on escaping the darkness and shining this true humanistic, autonomous, philosophical light around the world. They were moving out of what they called the Dark Ages and forward into the light. Or were they? Was the Enlightenment moving out of darkness and into light? I mean, if, if you think about this, they actually weren't going forward at all. If they're going back to the Greek philosophers, that means they went right back to Athens circa Acts 17. So the Enlightenment is rooted in a moment that the Apostle Paul was dressing in Acts chapter 17. Though they thought they were shining a light, they were choosing to fumble in the dark. There was no new light being shown on anything. And by the way, this kind of thinking, enlightenment thinking, is still with us today. We are a product of this thing that's ironically called the enlightenment. 
Some would say today that, that knowledge is the light of the world. All we need is better education, and we're going to step out of the darkness. Or we could argue that science is the light of the world. As we learn more about our universe through science, we'll finally be able to become the type of, of race that can, that can rid the world of evils and bring true good. Others would argue that deep religious knowledge is the light of the world. We need to look deeply within ourselves and gain the sort of type of inward knowledge that will allow us to be the people th that we're created to be. But Jesus' statement is unequivocal. I and I alone am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And I think it's really important to put those words of Jesus in some historical context, because sometimes I think we read Jesus and the Bible and we sort of pull everything out of history and we read it like it's some other planet. You need to understand that when Jesus said this, this is fascinating to consider, when Jesus said that he and he alone was the light of the world, he said that hundreds of years after Socrates and Plato and Aristotle lived and wrote. So the very Greek philosophers that the Enlightenment fathers were looking back to, after they were dead and gone, Jesus was standing in public places saying, listen, I am the light of the world. He knew those philosophies. Everyone knew who those people were. And Jesus said, no, no, there's a different way. I am the light of the world. As thoughtful as their insights might have been, Jesus is saying there is only one person who illuminates the darkness, and that's me. And it's, it's not just the historical context that makes that powerful. Even where Jesus says this physically is incredibly dramatic and beautiful. Back to John chapter 8. Verse 20 of John chapter 8 says that Jesus spoke these words or had this interaction, this whole, I'm the light of the world, uh, the woman caught in adultery. All of this happened in the treasury of the temple, which um, means what he, it was an area that was actually called, um, also called the court of women because it was the place that the most people could come and be a part of what was happening at the temple the most public part of the temple. But in this court, specifically during this time of year, there were these four golden candelabras, and every one of them had four bowls that were filled with oil by the priests. And on the first night of the Feast of Tabernacles, this week that Jesus is there teaching, that everybody's there celebrating, during this time, the, the, the candles would be lit, and each day a new one would be lit to celebrate or to remember the Lord leading the people out of their slavery in Egypt. They were celebrating that God had taken them out of their darkness and brought them into light. And, and if you know that story, you know that they were delivered or the way that they traveled was directed by a plume of smoke and a pillar of fire, a light that led them in the darkness is how they were delivered by God. And so it was this unique way that they were led, and they're celebrating this moment during the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, by the way, means tent, and so it, it reminded them of the days they lived in tents in the desert and followed the leading of God. That's why it's called this. And so they would illuminate these candles the way that God had illuminated their pathway. That's what is happening here. So here, Jesus stands at the conclusion of this feast with these candles burning in the background that everybody knows what they represent, and he says in that context, I am the light of the world. I'm the pillar of fire. I'm the lamp to your feet. I'm the light to your path. I will walk you out of darkness. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life.
And then a few moments later, he says this, verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, and you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, which is really interesting because they seem, have, seem to have forgotten those years in Egypt. How is it that you say you'll become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We won't be lost. We'll know where to go. We'll know who to, who to follow. We will be free. I, um, <clears throat> I've had this light for a really long time uh, in my garage. And uh, it belonged to my grandfather. I found it in his shop after he had passed away. And um, so it became mine. And I don't use it very often because, quite honestly, I'm scared of it. I know he, like, rewired it multiple times. This plug, I think, is, like, from 1950, you know. And, and uh, when I do use it, there's always this moment where I'm like, okay, there's a certain level of desperation. Like, and it's dark enough or I need to use it in this moment. And whenever I plug it in, there's always this, like, like I'm like, okay, Lord, if this is how I go, I, I you know, this is it. And so I, I'm always this moment, I'm like, okay, do I use Grandpa's light? Okay, I'm going to do it. And so then I plug it in. And every time I plug it in, this crazy old, like they don't make things like they used to, this light works every single time I plug it in. As scary as it is for me to use it, it's always working. Now let me ask you a question, and this is sort of an obvious question. Can you have the light and not use it? You can, right? Certainly, that's the case. If the light is unfamiliar or if the light is a little wild, or the light's a little dangerous, or the light's a little outside of your comfort zone. Certainly, you can have this. You may have the light, but you may not choose to use it. So, so second question for you. What's the difference between someone who has their path illuminated and someone who's fumbling in the dark? It's an issue of using or not using the light. Not having or not having, it's using it. The difference is whether or not you turn it on, whether you use it. You can have the light and not use it. So Jesus says, listen, I'm the light of the world, which means he illuminates. He has the potential to illuminate everything we see. We simply can't see things as they really are without him. So the objects in our life, the people in our life, the path of our life, they cannot really be seen for what they are apart from him. The, the reality that Jesus is the light of the world gives us another way to, to just view the world around us. That's what he's saying, a way that helps us actually see, which means that Jesus is more than just a message or a story. Like, we don't just tell the story of Jesus. He's not just a historical figure that we draw people's attention to. He is the one who provides illumination through which we view every aspect of our existence, how we see our jobs and how we see our education and our relationships and our values and our desires, all of these things. But you have to let the light shine. You have to say, Jesus, illuminate this. You have to look at those things through his lens, which leads to a few more questions. Do you turn the light on and let it shine on your life? 
I know you have them. A lot of you, you have the light. Like you're carrying grandpa's work light around. And it's a little nerve-wracking because you're not sure. It's a little wild. But do you let the light of Jesus shine on your life? I was thinking about this. I was asking myself this question. Why do I struggle? With, why do we all struggle with this so much? I think it's because turning on a light in a dark place is like going into a basement or a closet that you haven't been in for a long time. We know there's stuff there that we're kind of ignoring, right? There's stuff that's there, and we might be avoiding it. And maybe you don't want to see it. But when you choose to really follow Jesus, it's like turning on the light in a dark room, and there may be things that we've been avoiding. There are dark corners of this world, and there are dark corners of our life. And so what happens when you start walking into your emotions or you start walking into your desires or you start walking into your sexuality or you start walking into your past or your childhood, you start walking into your current situation with the light on? Because here's what we think. Oftentimes, this, this is the way a lot of humans live. We just think, no, no, I'll just keep like one step ahead of all this stuff. If I just kind of stay ahead of it, then, then I just won't have to deal with these things. Like, if I don't step into the pain, if I don't slow down, then I never have to deal with it. But that's just wandering around in the darkness. We're just piling up more stuff in the closet. Jesus says, no, no, listen, if you would surrender to me, if you just trust me, if you trust that I have something better and you let go of everything else, he goes, you're going to really find life that way. That's where you really find life. Yeah, yeah you're going to have to walk some places, go to some places maybe you didn't expect. You're going to have to leave the comfort of this place and take the light into those places, but that's where there is life. So another question, and, and I really want you to wrestle with this one this morning. Do you trust that Jesus has something better for you than whatever it is you're holding on to right now? Do you trust that Jesus has something better for you? And what would it take for you to trust him? I think about a girl who hurts herself and lies and feels empty and wants to be filled. Or I think about a man who's so angry he never stops working because he's just avoiding the anger. Or a woman who just spends her days drinking away her pain, or a marriage that's clearly not alive and not working, or a heart that's been broken and has grown calloused and is unable to love, or a life that seems meaningless, that wonders, why am I here? I think about all of these things, and here's what I know, all of them feel really dark, but there is a light Jesus is the light, and there is a light that will shine the truth of God's love and his hope in even to the, the darkest situations. So where are the dark places in your life? I have them. I was talking to my friend Dave last night about some dark stuff. We were talking about dark stuff that we wrestle with, dark stuff that's in our life. Where are the dark places in your life? Let me say this, whatever it is, whatever it is you're wrestling with, whatever the darkness is, Jesus says to you, not me, Jesus says to you, you don't have to live that way. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. 
He also said, I've come that you would have life and life to the full. And a full life sure sounds good, doesn't it? Amen. That's why I always come back to the place of the psalmist. You are a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Light my path and shine some light in the dark corners of my world. Would you stand with me? If you're new with us, we close our services with a benediction, and it's just a simple prayer that we send you into this week with. And so as we continue this season of Advent, as we continue to look forward to the arrival of Jesus, may you be men and women who experience the illuminating presence of Jesus in your life. May the dark corners of your life be filled with light. And may there be a light on your feet and a light on your path as you move towards the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.